Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, just give me a moment. You would turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, or, or you can read on page 4 of our bulletin, and please stand as we read it. So we're standing out of respect for the word, but if you cannot stand, that's understandable. And it reads, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, it's verse 21 through 31, not verse 1. So verse 21 through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These, two, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And this is the word of the Lord. May it bless you and may you receive it as such. Please be seated. Today's text might be a little strange to some of us. Maybe you've read it many times, and it still seems strange to you. Paul intended today's text to be a little bit shocking. Uh, but it may be shocking in an unintended way to us here in the modern age. Some say uh, that the Bible endorses slavery. And they may use a text like this one to prove their point. But nobody today is teaching what the pro-slavery people were teaching to justify their slave owning, except the critics. The, slave, the slavery abolitionists' interpretation has won the day unanimously in all the churches. Why is that? Is it because we like it more today? No, it's because it is the sober and charitable reading of the Bible. Do the critics of the Bible really want to own and promote the outdated pro-slavery interpretation. Oh, they wield their interpretation as a weapon. That's why they have it. They, they have a weapon not for an interest in truth, but because it serves their godless motive to promote and profit from the planting of doubt in the faithful. But their weapon formed against this shall not prosper. 
And that's because that's the promise of God to his children of promise. Today's sermon is entitled, The Children of Promise. If, if these critics, critics would read the Bible more charitably, uh, the Bible interprets itself. Have the critics not read, to use a line from Jesus, have they not read what they're claiming to criticize? Have they not seen the progress of salvation history that the Bible so boldly presents in every one of its 66 books? The central event of the Old Testament, what is it? Exodus from slavery, a divine deliverance from slave masters in Egypt. And the central event of the New Testament, it is the gospel where we have freedom in Christ from slavery, even to sin and death. What master is left to promote? Uh, these pro-slavery interpretations of the Bible are texts without a context. And you know what that means. If you have a text without a context, you have a pretext. It's a, a hidden motive, not from the heart of God. It's, it's from the heart of the pretextor, if I can coin a word. The critic fault finds without any intention of fair play why do they rage against the good news of Christ crucified for your sins as a gift of adoption? Why, why would they rage against that? Why would they try to make it look bad? I think it's because secular Bible critics do not want to be adopted. They want to do life on their terms with no higher court to answer to. Well, therefore, their own denunciation of slavery is a mere human opinion with no higher court through which to appeal. That's supposed to be the superior view? Nevertheless, many challenges like this, empty though they are, it, it bothers us, it upsets us. It causes us to wonder, are we understanding our Bible correctly? Are we perhaps not obeying enough of the law to be serious Christians? Or perhaps on the other side, are we perhaps following a false god that's really a lie, that the real God is more compassionate even than the God of the Bible. Well, that makes us, of all people, most to be pitied by our, own, by our own scripture. But church, we don't have to feel our way to truth when we have these attacks. It makes us feel bad. It makes us feel like we might not have the truth. But we don't feel our way to truth all the time. Nor do we fake it until we make it by law-keeping or feelings. Though sometimes that can be wise. That's not the way the gospel works. Law-keeping until we feel like it. That's, that's Kierkegaard. That's not Jesus. But we have the promise of God to trust in. It's not law-keeping to feelings. It's not feelings to truth. It's the promise of God to trust in by faith over our feelings. It's not behavior modification then. It's grace. And that's what we've been talking through Galatians through the past months or so on, on this sermon series, that we are not justified by law-keeping. We're justified by grace alone. But we don't have to stay ignorant to avoid the critics' questions to guard our feelings because God supplies apt answers. For the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. But we, only ha we, we have only to listen to the word more regularly more charitably, ourselves, as we study it, trusting in it, because it's powerful. It's not just words. So what's Paul's point today if it's not an implicit 
endorsement of slavery? What, why is he bringing this tough topic into view? And so, so strangely, using old stories from the Old Testament, well, let's look at the text today. From starting at verse 21, it says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He, he's been using the old law, the, the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, to justify his view of justification by grace alone, to justify the gospel, and to say there is no other gospel. This other gospel that the Judaizers in Galatia are promoting, that you have to be Jewish to be saved, to be a true Christian, otherwise you can be like Paul, who's a hypocrite, and I guess they would think that Paul is going to hell. He's not saved, he's a hypocrite. Paul is saying, no, Abraham received a promise, then he received a law. And he's argued very successfully, I think, so that we get his point already. But just for one more nail in the coffin, he's, he's reaching out to those that have been most convinced by the Judaizers. So you are so desirous of this law. Now let's read it together. And this is the, the last straw for them. Maybe it's awkward to us. But as you look through this, through the viewpoint of someone who's Jewish, or if you know your Old Testament well enough, you'll be Jewish enough for it too. But first he starts off with a challenge. You love the law? Have you not read it? Uh, and th this is exactly the way Jesus would talk to the Pharisees. He, he said it to the Sadducees when they ask a big question about, you know, whose wife is this poor woman going to be that we've hypothesized that she had seven brothers and they all died and he, she was the wife of all of them. In heaven, who's she, whose wife is she going to be? Aha, Jesus. We're trying to show you there's no resurrection and how foolish are you to think there's a resurrection. But Jesus doesn't fall for the gotcha. He says, have you not read? The Pentateuch even says that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And from just that, he shows everybody God is God, not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. They're still living. And then he makes the point that there's no marriage in heaven, much to our chagrin sometimes today. But that's another topic. You love the law. Have you not read it? In other words, read it. Read it often. Hope in it. Trust in it. Because it's for your salvation. But these people, the Judaizers, and those who are, who are most convinced by them, they're being led astray into something that's not a gospel at all. And they're in danger of being separated from Christ, he's about to say in the next chapter. It couldn't be any worse for them. So now, since there's the common ground of the law, he's drawing their attention back to it. What is this story then about Sarah and Hagar? Because that's really what he's speaking about. In order to understand the allegory, we have to go back to Genesis 16 to 18, even 22 and 25, and we'll hear about the stories of Sarah, Hagar, and their two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was first. In fact, Abraham had more than two sons. But that's not Paul's point. We could kind of nitpick. There was another woman after Sarah died, Keturah, and he had many more children with Keturah. But that's not the point, because we're talking about the children 
of promise. Which one is it? Ishmael or Hagar? And there was only one correct answer. The Muslims today say Ishmael. But Paul said it's Isaac, and that's the Old Testament as well. If we love the law, we read it the way it's meant to be understood. And maybe that sounds like legalism. So I want to, want to make a comment about that before we go. This, this text has a, a danger of many rabbit trails, but I'm going to risk one here. So It sounds like legalism to talk about desiring the law. Paul is not actually, as we'll see in future um, chapter 5 and 6, he's not actually saying don't obey the law, don't love the law. He's saying don't seek that as a way of finding your way into by your own strength into the kingdom. But it's not, so it's not legalism to love the law, just like it's not legalism to go on a diet. Right? You may go on a diet. You have to eat. You gotta eat well to live. And someone can judge you, that's just legalism. Shouldn't be going on a diet. The Bible reading, uh, how about Bible reading regularly? Did that sound like legalism to you? If I just suggest to you, just read your Bible more. It can, it can be callous, admittedly. But we know that that's actually something we ought to do. And it, it, it improves our maturity in Christ, just like a diet improves your health. So maybe you're arguing, like, that, that's not practical. I really need more practical advice. Bible reading is not practical enough for you. That doesn't put the bread on the table, you say. But Jesus answers you, is it, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Yes, we need bread. We also need the word, even more than we need the bread. So if you're eager, an eager beaver about the practical things, how much more should you be eager to get in the word and get the word into you? So in other words, Jesus will be saying, on the authority of God, listen for your life. Not run for your life, but listen for, for your life. And Paul is using that kind of emphasis. Listen to the law, you who desire to be under the law, because it will correct you when you're wrong. Well, let's look now at Sarah and Hagar. And we're not going to go to Genesis. It's too long to read 16, 17, 18. There's a lot of chapters in there, but I'm going to summarize it. Uh, if you haven't ever heard the story of Abraham, I'll start with that. Abraham was called by God out of his home country, and he had a wife named Sarah of many, many years. In fact, Abraham is very old, and his wife is not much younger. So there's two old people, and they never had a child. And Sarah is called barren. She's unable to have children. But God promises Abraham, through a special promise of no of no work on Abraham's part, God just gives him a promise that he will have a son. That son should be through Sarah, the obvious wife. But 10 years go by, no son, no daughter, no child at all. And Sarah starts to think, hmm, maybe that promise needs some help. I'm speculating a little bit, but we know that she devises a plan to make God's plan work. And she even blames God for not having the ten, year, 10 years being more barren by saying, God has kept me from having a son. So why don't you marry my maid? This is legal in the 
the world and the culture today. Marry my maid and that child can be mine and we'll have the child of promise together. God promised one. We're going to have a child. He'll be blessed by God. Let's make it happen. So in her own will, her own effort, she basically gives, not basically, she gives her maid to Abraham as a wife. And so they get married. Now he's, now he's got two wives. And lo and behold, the younger Egyptian slave Hagar has a child. He names him Ishmael. And I think that means God hears. He's, he's very excited about Ishmael. Abraham's like, we did it. <laughs> but God visits him again and says, no, I don't need your help. That's not what I had promised you. I already promised you, you're going to have a son. It's going to be through Sarah. And this time name him Isaac, which means you're laughing at me because I gave you this promise that you don't believe. He laughs, it means. Because Abraham fell on his face laughing when he heard it, that he would have a child in his old age. And then Sarah, when she hears it, she also laughs. But then you know, God got the last laugh. And a year later, just as the Lord predicted, the promised child comes. This time it's like a miracle. This old woman, I think she's 90, has a child by nothing less than a miracle because it was a promise of God. So now we have the problem of a family feud. We have Hagar with her son, at the first son, who should get the inheritance. And she's thinking, I'm the slave, but I'm superior. I'm going to live longer than Sarah. And I can just mock my slave master because I'm going to win. She, she thinks she's in control. I'll show her. You know, Abraham's going to choose Ishmael. And sure enough, Abraham wants Ishmael more. And he asks God directly. The next time God shows up, I, can't you just use Ishmael? I like Ishmael. And God says, no. But I'll bless Ishmael anyway because he's your son. And I'll bless Hagar too. So he blesses Ishmael to have his own nation. But it's not the child of promise. It's not the same promise. So Hagar is sent away because she will not inherit. But Isaac is kept because he will inherit. So that's the, that's the long and short of it. There's a, a summary of what's been going on in the background. And that's what the Judaizers and the Galatians who are following them would understand. They would know these things by heart. They know the background of the Old Testament and they're bragging about how well they know the law. So Paul brings up this thing in the narratives, which is also called the law or the Torah. These women then, he starts to talk about the allegory. These women in verse 24 are two covenants, Sinai and a new Jerusalem, or the old covenant of law at Sinai and the covenant to Abraham, which is fulfilled by Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, the new covenant. We've got all the new covenants here. And one is represented figuratively, because Paul says he's doing this figuratively, intentionally. One is representing the old and one is representing the new. So Sarah is that new covenant mother. Hagar is the slave who can only bear children for slavery. And as we know, this word slavery in this is also being used allegorically. They, it is being used 
to make a point, not to affirm slavery, but to give the Galatians a choice. Which one looks better to you? Don't you want to choose freedom over slavery? Why are you going back to the slavery? Which, is already, which he has already said earlier in the, the book of Galatians. So we have two key verses to look at with regards to these women and the covenants. And then I want to ask, like, how does he come up with this allegory? Are we supposed to read the Bible allegorically with everything we look at? Because clearly the Genesis account doesn't look like it was trying to be figurative. It's clearly biographies, narratives that are real people, real times, real miracles, and God's real promise. So I hope to answer some of those questions here. First, let's go to verse 23 and verse 28. I'll read them again. Verse 23 is a very key verse who, that explains his allegory up front. He says, The son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. He means naturally, as usual, and even by, sinfully. It's, it's not according to God's will. It's according to the flesh. While the woman, the, according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So we can see that one is born supernaturally because of a promise and action of God by the Spirit versus one who was born, as you might expect, by the, the will of a man and a woman working out what they wanted to do, their plan. So you have two covenants, the covenant of work, two works. Uh, this, in, in, in one sense, this is how the Galatians would hear it. The one the, you work to heaven, although that's not being taught. And then you have this covenant of promise, which is you are a child. You are going to heaven and believe it. So uh, this is something that uh, Augustine would point out too, just to reiterate about the slavery freedom. There's a lot of contrasts here, not just slavery and freedom. Slavery and freedom is an important one, but it's the results of what's going on, not the root of Paul's argument. Augustine points out, it's not the slavery and the freedom that's really the core of the issue. It is the promise and the work. That's the, that's the connection to the issue in Galatia. They're saying, we are sons of Isaac because we work for it. We're Jewish enough. But Paul is saying, no, you are sons of Hagar. You are like Ishmael. You're working for it, and you're getting cast out. You're not even close. Come back to Christ. This is, this is as desperate as it can get. And that's why I said in the beginning that Paul is intentionally shocking his hearers. He's telling people who are proud to be Jewish from Jerusalem that they are sons of Hagar, the Arabian, from slavery. And so it couldn't be uh, more shocking for them to hear it. It would have been like, nah, yeah, huh. You know, they're, they're, they're both arguing for who is the son of Isaac or who is like a child of promise. But Paul makes his argument through scripture. And then we, we can see the other key verse, verse 28. Verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. He just tells them directly. This is who you are. So 
we don't have to doubt. That we had to connect those two, right? Sure, we can understand child of promise, miracle birth. That's the one God had promised and wants to do something with to bless the whole world through the offspring of Isaac. Through Isaac, your offspring will be determined. But what about us then? Well, verse 28 tells you that if you are in Christ, you are the son. He just said the ones who are sons of Abraham, the ones of promise, are the ones who are in Christ. He said that in, in chapter 3. If you even look at the very end of chapter 3, verse 29, it says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. He's, gets, he's just repeating this because they need to hear it. When we, when we look at the connection now between Hagar and Sinai, we, we have some questions. So let's try to figure out where is this coming from? It's a shocking connection, as I said, Hagar and Sinai to Jerusalem. I mean, why not Isaac and Sinai and Jerusalem? Obviously, Abraham's people were there. Because at Sinai, the people were given the law. And it was a law about obedience. They followed it or they died. And we learned in previous weeks, this was a guardian. This was a schoolmaster that was meant to point to Christ. It was a temporary arrangement until the time appointed by the Father. But these Gentile, these, uh, Gentile Jewish uh, Galatians want to keep it. They want to go back to it. What are they going back to? They're going back to what they said at Sinai in Exodus 24.3. All this we shall do. Just like Hagar and Abraham. And Sarah, when they made their plan, all this we shall do. We're going to make the promise happen. We're going to have a child. The new Jerusalem, or the Jerusalem above, is Sarah. And where does this come from? There's no Jerusalem above in the Sarah Hagar story. This comes from Jewish tradition and other scriptures. But we, we get this end times view of Jerusalem being perfected by God purified bride, the bride of God. This, this is what he, he means by Sarah being the Jerusalem above. The Jewish people, even before Paul, were talking about the Jerusalem above, the ideal Jerusalem. Just like there was some ideal temple in heaven from which the tabernacle was a copy. So how does he come up with this allegory, you know, He's just imagining it and putting it in the story. No, actually, Paul sees other allegories, so we can get the pattern. He sees an allegory of the Red Sea crossing as a baptism when the people of, of Israel go through the Red Sea in the Exodus. He sees Christ as a rock, or a rock as being Jesus Christ. There's a rock in the old law when they're going through the wilderness. Moses hits the rock, water comes out, and Paul... Surprisingly, it just comes up with, that's Jesus. So there's an allegory, sometimes, the way Paul teaches. But it's not random, and it's not something we need to find some secret code to, to get every sort of detail, and that the, the basic meaning of it is really nothing, and we need to soak up this other. We, no, that's not what Paul is doing. We can see that 
because he's using the actual meaning of the actual events of Sarah and Hagar. He's not ignoring them. He's not recreating the story. He's using the actual events and showing you the theological significance, the significance that the Spirit had in mind during that, you could say. But also, Paul can see this because Isaiah saw it. Isaiah allegorizes the two women. And he knows his Old Testament. Uh, if you ever want to uh, go back, to maybe after, uh, I will give you some Bible verses now, so you can write them down and look at them later. Uh, Paul's other allegories are all in one place that I mentioned, and that's 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. But now let's go through Isaiah. I'm just going to read two of the, two of the passages. There are many uh, that connect to our topic today. Isaiah, whom Paul is citing in verse 27 of chapter 4 here. <laughs> Watch out. Uh, Paul... <laughs> He's working. Paul is citing Isaiah uh, in verse 27 here. So that's why I brought up Isaiah. He do, I don't think uh, Paul mentions it's Isaiah, but it is. It's a direct quote from Isaiah 54, verse 1 and 2. But we can also look at, you can write this down. I'm not opening it up right now, but Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. talks about the Jerusalem being raised above all of the hills. And verse uh, chapter 49 19 to 21, especially 21. There's many children to the barren bride of God. And he's talking to Zion, which might be another way of saying Jerusalem. Then in chapter 51, we read, let's go to Isaiah now, chapter 51 of Isaiah. And it's just the first three verses. We can see, we can see Sarah and Abraham directly. Isaiah says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. He's speaking to the whole nation of Israel, to the city of Jerusalem. For he was but, for he was but one when I called him. He was one, one person when he called Abraham that I might bless him and multiply him. Verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion. There's the city again. He comforts all her waste places. That means places of destruction because of judgment. And he makes her wilderness like Eden. Her barrenness is fruitful like the garden of Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, in Jerusalem, in Zion, Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Uh, that would be the new Jerusalem because that's not the way it looks in Jesus' day in Jerusalem, in Paul's day either. In chapter 52, just one more chapter over, in verse 9, it reads, Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. There's two Jerusalems, a punished one, a desolate one, and a redeemed one. In chapter 65, uh, I, I'll just write, uh, actually write these down. Chapter 54, 1 through 6. Chapter 54, 1 through 6, and even verses 13 through 15 of 54. 13 through 15, where it says, The Lord is the husband of the redeemed Jerusalem. 
who was once desolate, and that children will be taught by God and have great peace and be established in righteousness. And then you get to chapter 65 of Isaiah. That's the last one we'll look at. Near the end of Isaiah, it gets very positive. We see the new creation. Chapter 65, 17 through 18. Let me be 19. For behold, I create new heavens. This is the Lord speaking through Isaiah. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. And be, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Not so much like slavery, but like freedom. This was the point that, that Paul saw in Isaiah, and now he's bringing up this allegory for, for what happened in Genesis. This is a Jewish point. They saw their identity as a family. So verse 27, how is it possible when, when Paul cites this passage from Isaiah 54 that the barren will have more children than the one who is not barren, the one with a husband even. It's not possible. If it happens at all, it's a miracle of God. So that's the point to the Judaizers. If you are in Christ, you are born of God from above and not born of any natural effort. This is the gospel. The result is freedom for the children of promise, not slavery. Why go back to slavery, right? That's, that's the issue at hand in the Galatians. So in verses 28, 30 to 31, we'll finish up there. You are the children of promise. How is one a son of Abraham? How do you know you are a child of promise? Is it by blood relationship, as the Galatians are thinking here, or by promise? We've just established it's by promise. And this is the teaching of Jesus, too, that it's by faith that the sons of Abraham are determined. This is not new. This is not a, a, a new teaching that there's somehow two Israels. It's always been that way, that there was a remnant in the Old Testament, that there was unfaithful Israel being cast out and faithful Israel being, being kept for this wonderful time and this wonderful future, this wonderful hope. It's by promise that we are born from above, born again of God. In Romans 9, 7, Paul says, not all, all, not all are children of Abraham. And in chapter 3, when Jesus is speaking to the Nicodemus, the teacher of teacher of Israel's, he says that you have to be born from above. Or in other words, using the same word, we can also translate it. Intentionally, it's double meaning, born again. And Nicodemus says, how can I be born again? Go back into my mom? That's work. That's work mind right there. No, it's not that way. It's by the Spirit who blows where it will. The flesh is no help at all. Jesus, chapter 6 of John, verse 63. And then Peter. 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25. You can read that for yourself later. 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25. Peter talks about this as well. So thank God. Thank God it doesn't depend on your performance or how you feel. You repent. You desire God. Then you're, you're a child of God. 
It's not telling a story to make yourself feel better. It's not telling a story to identify with somebody. That's what the Judaizers were doing. They were saying, we are in with Sarah and, and Isaac. These days, the, the progressive church likes to tell stories to prove their point. Truth by stories, someone said. But that's not what Paul is doing here. He's not saying fake it until you make it. He's not saying identify with Christ. You can identify with a cheeseburger. It doesn't make you a cheeseburger, right? But, but when we say our identity is in Christ, that means we are picked out. That means Jesus identifies us. That means we are who Jesus says we are, not who we think we are. See, if I identify with Christ on my own power because of my story, that's me doing it. But when Jesus makes a promise, that's a promise you can take to the bank. When he says who you are, that's who you are. So it doesn't depend on whom you identify, but whom God promises. You, you live by the Spirit then. If you are in Christ, you have, you have cleaved to Christ. You have believed in him. You know who he is. Then he gives you life by the Spirit. The Spirit gives and you lives. That's not so clever. but have, He gives and you lives. You have freedom in Christ then. So stand firm is what Paul is moving to next. If you look at chapter 5, verse 1, his, his discussion is not finished. It's interrupted by the chapter change there, but it's not the way Paul wrote it. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't choose slavery when you can be free. Don't submit to persecution. What persecution? The Judaizers' persecution. The one that Isaac, I'm sorry, Ishmael and Hagar were persecuting Sarah and Isaac with, grinning at them, laughing at them, saying, Making, making plans. By Jewish tradition, they believed Hagar was out to kill Sarah or that Ishmael would have killed Isaac, just like Esau and Jacob were at each other and just like Joseph's brothers tried to kill Joseph. They believed the same thing was going on with Hagar and that's why she was um, laughing the way she was. In, in John Chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus tells us that all who come were given by the Father and will never be cast out. The works to heaven is the cast out way. The promised way, never cast out. Rejoice and be glad, for it is when you are persecuted, rejoice and be glad. That's a sign you're a child of promise. Your reward will be great in heaven. James says, count it all joy. It's not joy, but count it that way because that's a sign that you are sons and daughters. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Whether it martyrs you or not, that's not prospering. If the weapon martyrs you, that doesn't hurt you in the end. The end of the story, as Don was pointing out, is that God wins and you get a new body. Paul says in Philippians 3, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They've deconstructed their faith or they've become the critic to try to kick you out of the church as well because they want you to join them. But they're walking as enemies of the cross of Christ and that should cause us 
to be filled with tears like Paul has tears for them because their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. Set your minds on the hope of glory, the new Jerusalem. The things that are above, because that's where Jesus is. That's our treasure. And if your treasure is where Christ is, your heart, your treasure is where your heart is. If your heart is in heaven, then. Paul says, to finish out his verse in, in Philippians chapter 3, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's good news. So in Isaiah 55.3, in Isaiah 55.3, there Isaiah is telling us, we listen to the word of God. We listen to it with hope because that is our calling. It, we are saved by faith in that when we hear God's call. Cling to that hope by clinging to the clear call and promise of God. Don't force rules on other Christians because we can... We've talked about this from black and white, but there can be that middle ground of you. You're a child of promise, but you're doing it wrong. And we need to repent of that if we start pushing rules on people that God never pushed or starting to think of faith as a work. That, that can really hurt somebody in the end. So we do want to watch out for ourselves by clinging to the word, by clinging to the promises, reminding each other about that. And then walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I'll wrap up with Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the benefit of your word. Without it, we would have eyes that are dark. We wouldn't know where we're going. But your light is a lamp unto our feet. It humbles us. And it encourages us. Help us to cling to the hope that you've given, that you've promised, so that we're not shaken when the critic comes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And would you please stand for the hymn of response?